Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, the blue wave swept out the red tide in Albany. What's been left in its wake? There's never been a session where this much has gotten done. And not just like ticking off boxes, but like, like big stuff, like congestion pricing, climate change, a big rent loss thing. So yeah, it has been very productive. be honest, up until this year, I didn't really pay attention to Albany. Like, I yelled about the IDC, but I couldn't have really told you what was going on at the state legislative level. That's partially because the answer for as long as I've lived in New York State was not a whole lot. We had a centrist Democratic governor, a Republican state Senate, and not a bunch got done. And then last fall, Albany got flooded by the blue tsunami, becoming a hotbed of activism and activity. New York State has perhaps never seen a stretch like the last six months, with a slate of progressive reforms sweeping the agenda and being signed into law. Not everyone is happy, of course. We're now about a week removed from the end of the legislative session, and here to tell us about the winners, losers, and lasting impact is Jarrett Murphy, executive editor of City Limits. Hi, Jarrett. Hello, Mackenzie. So is that an accurate summation that this has been sort of like an unprecedented legislative session? It is totally unprecedented. I think, you know, beyond what would be your or my memory, uh, people much older than that say that this is sort of, there's never been a session where this much has gotten done. And not just like ticking off boxes, but like, like big stuff, like congestion pricing, climate change, a big rent loss thing. So yeah, it has been very productive, uh, I think one could say objectively. It is an indication of just how big the agenda was and how big people's desires and expectations were, that there are, as you said, some people disappointed even with that outcome. Right. And not only did we regain, and by we I mean the progressives, gain control of the state Senate, but a lot of more centrist legislators were voted out in favor of reformers. Um, That's correct. So let's talk a little bit about some of these progressive items that you mentioned. Talk to me about some of the criminal justice wins, because later we're going to talk about some of the things that maybe didn't go far enough. Right. So in the budget in April, which in New York State always contains a lot of non-budget policy items for some reason, there was a slate of criminal justice reforms, uh, bail reform that eliminated cash bail in the vast majority of cases, um, reforms to actually solidify speedy trial in New York State, try to make that a real, that's a constitutional constitutional right that is often not executed, um, and discovery reform too, which was a big thing. You know, New York State up until that point had discovery laws, which is when the prosecution is supposed to share stuff with the defense to say, here's the case we're putting on, gives the defense a chance to challenge it, to figure out other witnesses, to come up with holes in the theory and alternative theory of the crime. It used to be that what was shared was very little and relatively late in the process. That's been reformed. So those were kind of sweeping changes in Albany. And it's important to recognize that that stuff all connects here in the city because speeding people through the process, making it easier for people to be held uh, before trial, not behind bars and not on bail, is all part of closing Rikers by removing and reducing the population there. So it it's a issue that affects not just individual cases, but also this big, very present local uh, policy. Issue. Sure. And I want to come back to criminal justice reform and how it impacts people in New York City specifically in just a little bit. But for now, why don't we talk about rent reform? This is huge. It was huge. 
So this is the system, for those who don't know, this is rent stabilization system that covers about a million apartments, about two million people in New York City. It also has always affected Nassau, Westchester, and Rockland counties too. And this is the system by which apartments, their rent can only go up by a certain amount each year, set by the Rent Guidelines Board, which is a local panel. For many years, uh, the Republican-controlled state Senate put into place changes that made that system more and more friendly for landlords. In recent years, it's kind of stood pat. One of the top progressive goals for this session was to totally change that because the system as it's been currently constructed has been losing units because the units were priced too high to, they crossed the threshold, they were no longer stabilized, and there were mechanisms built in the law that basically guaranteed that was going to happen. Right. There are these loopholes, right, where if a landlord made some type of improvements, right. they could raise it. If to, they fixed the mm -hmm. roof, they could raise it. If they improved the apartment when it was vacant, they could raise it. They could raise it uh, by 20% just because they changed tenants, which tenant advocates said was a built-in incentive for displacement. Why not evict someone, get the 20%? And every time that happened, it was climbing the rent toward this threshold for decontrol, for basically going out of the system. So huge incentives for landlords, a huge problem for the system, which was bleeding units, I think, by the tens of thousands of units each year for, for much of the past 20 years. What happened this year was a total reversal of that, eliminating vacancy decontrol, strictly regulating major capital improvements, individual apartment improvements, making preferential rents, which is one landlords offer you a discount. The fear has always been that they could suddenly jump the rent to the legal rent, imposing a huge increase, basically locking in preferential rents as the legal rent. I mean, a whole slew of reforms. Landlords are terrified. They are very, very, very upset at this. It is a true landscape shift and earthquake uh, in tenants' favor. And they're saying, well, well, you know, fewer capital improvements are going to get made then. They're sort of threatening that they're going to be investing less in these rent-stabilized apartments. Do you think that that will happen? At the margins, it might happen. I mean, it's important to recognize that even the landlord's advocacy group, the Rent Stabilization Association, they estimated that over in a typical year, some $11 billion are invested in New York City stabilized housing. Only a couple hundred million of those, which is a relatively small amount in comparison, are through the major capital improvements or individual apartment improvements. Landlords upkeep their buildings because they are investments. They don't necessarily intend to own them forever. They plan eventually to sell them. They are held to a housing maintenance code that requires them to do certain maintenance. So certainly there might be some landlords that do fewer projects. They still get to recoup the money just over a longer period. I don't know that the kind of chicken little reaction landlords have had is really going to manifest itself in reality. I suspect most buildings will still be kept up. And where was Cuomo with this rent reform? He has received a ton of money from the real estate industry over the course of his tenure. Um, but when rent reform came up this year and the real estate lobby asked him for help, he sort of turned his back on them. That was a fascinating episode that I don't think we quite know enough about. Andrew Cuomo has always been distrusted by some in the tenant movement. They think that he sold them out in the past or at least not fought very hard for them. It's true that the two previous rent renewals during his tenure have not been great for tenants, modest improvements um, at best in some cases, and largely leaving some of the major problems untouched. He was basically iced out of this process by the state Senate and the Assembly, which was fascinating. He was not allowed to be part of the negotiations, which is in and of itself unprecedented in Albany. The governor, especially Governor Cuomo, was not part of this huge deal until he had a chance to sign it, and he did sign it. 
Um, another big legislative victory. We saw a law that would allow driver's licenses to all people in New York, regardless of immigration status. And this passed despite strong objections from the Long Island Democratic contingency. What is wrong with Long Island? Well, it's a big deal because obviously uh, undocumented Im immigrants do drive. Many of them have to drive for work. It's a reality. Um, this is really about, I think, making the system safer for everybody by making it more regulated. Uh, I am surprised this passed just because I know immigration is such a such a touchy topic in a lot of those districts. It passed largely because of the very large advantage Democrats have in the Senate. You know, when it was one or two people deciding whether they had control or not, you needed every single Democratic vote, and that limited what you can do. With a 15-seat majority or whatever they have now, they can lose a couple of people. They can let a couple of people vote no on something, give them political cover, and it still passes. And I think that's what has happened here. What will be interesting is next year when those folks are up for re-election in those marginal districts, if they will actually be able to do distance themselves from that vote and if anyone even still cares about it at that point. Right. The whip didn't have to make them fall in line in something that was deeply unpopular in Long Right. Island. They could vote no and, and then they can go home and say, I voted no on this. Right. I was against it. And so you can still love me, but the policy still passes. So that's what's handy about having a huge majority. So why is this such a divisive issue on Long Island? Why is, is un, are undocumented immigrants just a huge problem, quote unquote, for people on Long Island? Like, what's their beef? I think what it is is that, and this has been true for a while in both uh, Long Island counties, Nassau and Suffolk, that there's always been a, a large vein of anti-immigrant sentiment. And, you know, I think a lot of it is the old xenophobia and racism that affects anti-immigrant sentiment everywhere. I think in these cases, it's about places that were fairly homogenous before uh, being asked to accept uh, heterogeneity. And I think in the city, we are used to that. We're built for that. It isn't always easy. It isn't always pretty. But it's kind of part not just of our fabric, but of our kind of defining myth. That's not true of those places. And so those changes feel very jarring. It's no excuse for hateful activity, obviously. But I think it's part of why people are much more reluctant to, uh, to make that jump. What about the sexual harassment legislation that was passed? Tell me about that. So this was about uh, trying to correct decades of inactivity and then some pretty lame activity in recent years to try to show up how Albany deals with sexual harassment. And so this was uh, an issue that was very courageously advocated by several women who are current and former staffers uh, in the legislature. They fought for this for months. They did it even before Me Too kind of became a national thing. And they think they achieved much of what they were seeking, which is basically in some ways to try to move Albany and the rules that affect legislatures and legislators into the real world that the rest of us have to deal with. That was previously not the case, and, and now it is. Were there any other major pieces of legislation that you were really surprised ended up passing? I was surprised the Climate Protection Leadership Act, or whatever it's called, passed. I really didn't think that that had the kind of support it needed to to pass. It's a fairly ambitious act. What it, do we see in it? What it does is it puts New York State on the path of, by 2050, being net carbon neutral meaning we will not produce any net greenhouse gases. It's a compromise. It isn't for 100% renewable. It's basically getting rid of 85% of our emissions over 2009. 
uh, or 2005, I'm sorry, and then 15% of it can be uh, offsets. So in mm-hmm. other words, we do other stuff to make up for the stuff that we're still polluting. Um, that's not what some of the activists want, but it's much more than we previously had. has a lot of other stuff in the bill, not as much as folks wanted to protect low-income communities against both climate change and the impact of some of these new regulations. Not a lot on green jobs, but some. But it passed on, I think, the la- very last day, and I was very surprised that that went through. And does this piece of legislation act as sort of a concrete roadmap to how we're going to get to carbon neutral, or is it more of a pledge? It's a pledge, but it's got some hard deadlines. I mean, it is law. It's more than just kind of a symbolic um, idea. And there are guideposts and milestones in there. It doesn't lessen the challenge this is going to be, but I think it really does represent a pretty firm commitment by New York State to do it. The legislature also voted to end religious exemptions to vaccines. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, Why is that such a big deal? And what are communities saying about this? Well, this is something we saw coming because of the measles outbreak this year. And there's a lot of discussion about whether this exemption would last. I think that the communities that are upset about it were already upset about the crackdowns being ordered in Rockland County and here in the city. They'll remain upset. There might be a challenge to it. Um, you know, on religious or constitutional grounds. Uh, But for now, it is the law of the state. And I think it's uh, an interesting move. Um, And it was interesting, too, that some of the people behind it were folks from Rockland County, where these communities that believe in the exemption are very strong. But frankly, so are the people who were theoretically put uh, at risk by it. So uh, an interesting kind of political dynamic behind it there. Right. And my understanding is that there isn't actually um, a religious element behind it. It just happens that uh, in in sort of these more closed communities that some people feel very strongly about not vaccinating and other people feel strongly about vaccinating, just like everyone else. My theology is weak enough that I can't say there isn't anywhere a religious exemption to it. I would say that it's pretty well known that a lot of people who claim it do not actually have a religious objection. They have a scientific objection, and that objection is based on That is an objection to science. Exactly. It's been shown to be totally faulty and and baseless and puts people needlessly at risk. So we've been hearing a lot of hand-wringing by Republicans, also some moderate Democrats, um, that we're moving too quickly, uh, that this new quote-unquote socialist agenda uh, has been sweeping New York fast and furious, and that we may see repercussions when people go to the polls. This is from moderate Democrats. What do you think? Do you think that this type of change came too quickly? Should we slow it down next legislative session? Uh, it is It is a lot. There's no question it was fast. Um, I don't know that it's going to bother anyone at the polls next year because next year is a presidential race, and we know what that is going to be about and what is going to dominate all those, all those headlines. I think that part of the reason the Democrats and progressives moved so quickly was there was a sense this was a very rare, relatively brief window of opportunity. Not only did they have this huge majority in both houses and a governor who was somewhat reluctantly or perhaps begrudgingly come to the progressive side of things. But people knew that this was the year to do it because next year is an election year, which means people are going to be more cautious. And after that election, things could change. People could lose office. People could gain office. Um, So there was definitely a rush. And I think that's why you saw some of the big ticket items not really dealt with in terms of the devils in the details like congestion pricing or public financing for campaigns. Those have been outsourced to commissions that are still working on what the actual law will be. Um, But they did accomplish quite a bit. I don't think that there will necessarily be a backlash because none of these things are are particularly tied to something that's going to, in the next year or so, manifest itself as a disaster. Down the road, there could be adjustments, 
There might be, there already have been some of the rent laws, some technical fixes. Um, but I doubt that this is going to blow up in Democrats' face. I think that the question is what was left over, which I know we'll be talking about a little bit later, whether that's going to be attended to next year or at some point in the future. Let's talk about what was left over. Um, so our next guest is going to come on and talk about criminal justice reform and how perhaps the legislature did not go far enough. All right, so please don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment with a member of the coalition Communities United for Police Reform, Antonin Pierre. joined on the phone by Antonine Pierre. She is a member of the coalition Communities United for Police Reform um, and the deputy director here at the Brooklyn Movement Center. Antonine, welcome. Hi, thank you. So we were just talking with Jared about some of the real progressive victories that we saw in Albany this past legislative session. Unfortunately, criminal justice reform was not one of those victories. Can you tell me if you are disappointed uh, by what you saw from your legislators this session and why? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think when it comes to the new legislators, we saw them come in with a lot of energy and a lot of excitement, and we're passing a lot of bills really fast and heavy. And I think maybe with the exception of a few things like rent reform, it was really hard to not see them pass bills that would have really lasting impacts on the lives of black and brown and poor folks. And I think a lot of the criminal justice bills that weren't passed, so the Safer New York Act, including the Marijuana um, Regulation and Taxation Act, as well as um, Health Solitary, in the form that the progressives wanted for it to be passed in, we were bringing the kinds of reforms that would actually have a deep impact on the lives of New Yorkers, but instead it seems like they were interested in passing reforms that they could say we're good, um, but maybe wouldn't have deep impact. And Jarrett, remind us what happened with marijuana this past year. People were expecting it maybe to be legalized with the budget, but that mm -hmm. didn't happen, right? Yeah, I expected it to be legalized. I was surprised that didn't happen. And what was interesting was there was kind of two forms of objections to it. One was Bill de Blasio and some others said that they wanted to have careful controls about how the industry was set up. They didn't want it to become corporate dominated, which I guess is a concern that some other states have, have evinced. Um, and then you heard objections from county executives like Laura Curran and Nassau County and others saying they wanted to opt out of the law because they were concerned about things like, was there technology at hand for cops to decide whether or not someone was driving while high? So what we saw happen was a further decriminalization of small amounts of marijuana. Basically, if you had up to an ounce of marijuana before this, it was a violation, not uh, a misdemeanor. And now that's been doubled to about two ounces. There's some pretty heavy fines, 200 bucks, if you get caught with between one and two ounces, but it'd be a violation, not a misdemeanor. And it also moves smoking in public from misdemeanor to violation. That's helpful because, as, as our friend from the Brooklyn Movement Center would tell us, uh, there is this trick the cops have done where even though small amounts were decriminalized, if you took it out of your pocket in compliance with the police search, technically you were displaying it in public and you could be arrested on a misdemeanor for that. This now, theoretically at least, eliminates that from happening, but it's a long way from full legalization. 
And Anthony, are you satisfied with this further decriminalization, um, moving of smoking in public from a misdemeanor to a violation? And what do you think about de Blasio saying, oh, the reason why we can't pass weed uh, is because we don't want it to fall to corporate interests. Do you Are you satisfied with that response? When we talk about decriminalization for marijuana, um, advocates have been really clear since 2011 that decriminalization needs to come along with civilization and also with reinvestment and restitution to communities who've been harmed by years and years of really, really detrimental uh, marijuana laws, right? So I think when we, when in hearing what de Blasio is saying, I think it's also important to think about the ways that we want, we really want to make sure that reforms that we do around marijuana are actually going to be held up by the state and not put into the hands of the police. So one of the issues with decrim is that it gives police a lot more discretion about what they want to do. And if we actually want to be clear about actually uh, undoing some of the harms of marijuana from the past, we have to actually legalize and fully decriminalize and also do real community investment. Antonin, let's talk about another bill that did not pass, the End Police Secrecy Bill. This refers to a specific clause, uh, 50A, in a law relating to public officers and if any if any action, any administrative action has been taken against them, I believe. Will you tell us a little bit about End Police Secrecy and why you were hopeful that it would pass? Right, absolutely. In New York State, we hear a lot from our elected officials, particularly the governor and our, our leaders of our state legislature, about New York really being a beacon in the country, really being a leader in the country. And when we talk about police secrecy, uh, New York has one of two states, New York and Delaware, who have some of the most secret laws around police discipline. And what, what's really destructive about that is that it's actually not on par with the rest of public employees the state, right? So, or publicly regulated employees in the state. So, right now, you can look up the disciplinary records for your doctor, your dentist, a teacher, a massage therapist, um, and yet police are the only are the only public employees who can use deadly force on the public. And we don't have any clear idea of how they're disciplined, um, what they're even charged for when they're being disciplined. And we see it come into play into cases like the administrative trial of Daniel Pantaleo, who killed Eric Garner, where the mother of Eric Garner, Gwen Carr, may never actually find out the outcome of that administrative trial because of 58. And I think we only know about past disciplinary action against that officer because it was leaked to the press. Is that right? Right, right. And we find that, um, that the NYPD actually uses leaks, illegal leaks, very often to um, really taint public opinion and change the way that people think and, and view the NYPD as opposed to actually really rightfully releasing public information to the people who pay taxes. Jarrett, were you surprised that this bill didn't pass? It had the support of the New York Times editorial board. As Anthony mentioned, New York is one of two states that has this uh, cloak of secrecy around police officers. Did you expect that um, it would be repealed? I did. I did. I was surprised this didn't come up for passage. And as you just mentioned, this is an issue, obviously, for criminal justice reformers, but also for the press. This is a major bar to transparency and a key area of public interest 
it is antiquated, it's unique. You know, we tried to find out a few years ago uh, when the Bloomberg administration released data on what all teachers' evaluations were, all 80,000 teachers, their personal files were revealed. We tried to do something equivalent for police officers and were told that was illegal to do. So I was shocked that it wasn't fixed, and uh, I don't know if it will come up again, but I would assume there would be a lot of pressure for it to be changed in the future. Antonine, any other uh, bills that you want to talk about where you um, are disappointed that the legislature did not act on them? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, the Police Data Act is actually a bill that is a data and transparency bill, and it was a bill really meant to get public reporting on racial disparity in police stops um, and also in police killings of civilians. And what feels really hard about this bill not being passed is that it one it didn't it wasn't brought um, it passed the assembly for the fourth year in a row, um, but it wasn't brought to a vote in the Senate. And you know when we're talking about policing, we talk about data. We're talking about the real the most basic information that should be publicly available about what police are doing. And the longer in New York State we're not able to pass bills that are basically about data and transparency. The more of a message that the legislature sends that they want to protect the police at all costs as opposed to the public. As we talked about, so many progressive items were passed through this past session, really a, a landmark year for the progressive agenda, except really for criminal justice reform. Are you, do you, are you feeling betrayal at all? Um, you mentioned Andrea Stewart-Cousins did not even bring this uh, STAT Act to a vote. Um, what message would you like to send to legislators in Albany? Yeah, you know, betrayal is actually a really great word here. All of what was left on the table was really a slap in the face to black folks, to brown folks, to low-income folks all around the state. So the betrayal here feels that feels like we have this amazing black leadership who was able to take over the Senate and rally the Assembly and really pull together New York State under a banner of the Democratic Party and yet really failed to deliver for the folks who are most deeply impacted by detrimental criminal justice laws. Anthony Pierre, Jarrett Murphy, thank you for your time today. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to not skimp on the capital improvements. Also, please review 112BK on iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leek, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 